1: and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past.
0: Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Corr. Today we will be talking to Dorothy H. Crawford. Dorothy is an emeritus professor of microbiology at the University of Edinburgh, a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and a fellow of the Academy of Medical Sciences. She is here today to talk about her book, Deadly Companions, How Microbes Shaped Our History. Dorothy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
2: Uh, Yes, sure. Um, I'm a microbiologist, but I specialize in viruses, and um, I had the chair of medical microbiology at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine until 1997 when I moved to Edinburgh to take the chair of the same name. Um, I then became the assistant principal for public understanding of medicine at the University of Edinburgh, and uh, I held that until 2012 when I retired. Um, I now live on a small holding in the west coast of Scotland. Um, I look after animals. I grow vegetables, and I write popular science books and articles. Uh, overall, I've written eight popular science books, mostly about viruses. Um, and presently, I'm writing a column for a science column for the local newspaper.
1: What inspired you to write Deadly Companions?
2: Well, I actually wrote it 10 years ago and updated it last year as part of Oxford University Press Landmark Science Series. So um, I've always been fascinated by the interaction between microbes and man. Um, And because I study them, I don't see them always as an enemy. You know, I'm interested in how they interact with us and also how that interaction has changed over the centuries and how microbes might have affected world history. So um, it sounds like a large task, but um, I really enjoyed writing it, actually. There's not much out there. You have to sort of relate it between different uh, publications because there's not much out there that relates the two together.
1: Let's give our listeners a bit of foundation for the rest of the conversation. Can you please define the term microbe as it's used in your book?
2: Yes, I use the term microbe to mean any microscopic organism. Um, So mainly I'm talking about protozoa, bacteria, archaea, and viruses. Those would be the main ones.
1: Can you talk about how microbial life began and how it evolved?
2: Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, Well, life on Earth appeared about 4 billion years ago, um, when the Earth had cooled sufficiently for there to be Uh, Water rather than water vapor around and at first or for a long time. It was just single-celled organisms rather similar to today's Archaea Um, And these are also called extremophiles because they live in the most hostile environment that you can find So you find them today in acid lakes and salt marshes and um, at the bottom of ocean trenches where hot vents um, Spew out boiling water or, or hotter than boiling water and under the polar ice caps. And these microbes had the world all to themselves for about three billion years. So not surprisingly, they um, have evolved to occupy every niche. There was no oxygen available at the time, so they used chemicals such as sulfur, nitrogen, and iron to generate energy. And it's only after all that time that multicellular organisms evolved once oxygen was available, to make respiration much more efficient.
1: Can you talk about the different ways that various microbes spread?
2: Um, Yes. Well, I mean, microbes have a role to spread in every conceivable way to reach a susceptible host. Obviously, for them, uh, this is their lifeline. If they um, leave one host because the immunity is building up and can't find another host, then they die. And if that happens to uh, all the microbes in that particular species, then that's it, died out. Um, so uh, I usually say that if you can think of a way that a microbe might spread, then it will have already thought of it. Um, so there are the obvious methods of transport, like direct contact between hosts, for example, indirect contact via infected objects, through the air is a very efficient way of spreading long distances, or in water or spread by a vector like a mosquito. But they also um, uh, can spread from mother to unborn child through the blood and the placenta. And they're extremely up to date by utilizing uh, blood transfusion, organ transplant, uh, contaminated needles, and contaminated surgical instruments. So um, as I say, they, they are extremely efficient at moving from one host to another.
1: What is an epidemic and what causes them to strike?
2: Um, Well, an epidemic is defined uh, rather vaguely, I suppose, as um, a large-scale increase in a particular disease in a specific location. Um, So, these generally occur when a microbe, uh, for example Ebola recently, um, is introduced to a naive or a susceptible community. And it it can then uh, rip right through um, the community infecting people until almost everybody is either uh, recovered and are immune to further attack or has died of the disease. And then, obviously, the epidemic falls off and the microbe moves somewhere else for a while.
1: So then what's the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic?
2: Um, Well, it's really a case of size. An epidemic is, as I said, um, a large-scale increase in a particular disease in a particular location. A pandemic is when you get an increase on a worldwide scale. So it, the um, epidemic has to be going on, on two continents at the same time to call it a pandemic. So we get pandemics of flu when they literally sweep around the world.
1: Can you please explain host resistance for our listeners?
2: Yes, well, um, host resistance just means a person who is resistant to an infectious microbe. And this occurs either when somebody has been infected before and therefore develops immunity to further infection, or it may be due to genetic resistance. And uh, genetic resistance develops in a community slowly over generations, um, and in a community that's constantly battling with a lethal microbe, such as malaria or plague, for example. So during an epidemic of of these um, fairly lethal organisms, uh, the microbes kill those that have the weakest resistance because they have high death rates, these uh, um, diseases, leaving the survivors to reproduce. So over centuries, those with the most resistance thrive and in the end, the whole community becomes less susceptible. A, a good example, if you'd like one, is um, sickle cell anemia, which is an inherited mutation of red blood cells that cause them to be misshapen, and they carry oxygen poorly. And uh, this is uh, a disease that occur, occurs in Africa, genetic disease. Uh, it's it's fatal in homozygotes, that is people who get the gene from both parents um, if untreated. But in homozygous can survive, there people, sorry, heterozygous people can survive. They're the people who get one gene and have one normal gene. So such a mutation would have died out ages ago if this particular one didn't protect against death from malaria. Um, so malaria parasites find it hard to infect these uh, sickled red cells, and that's part of their life cycle. And so the um, mutation has actually reached very high levels in parts of Africa where um, malaria has been around for a very long time.
1: Can you please talk a bit about uh, early hunter-gatherer humans and microbes specifically touching on uh, malaria and sleeping sickness?
2: Our hunter-gatherer ancestors uh, evolved in Africa about 150,000 years ago. Um, They were nomads. Living in small groups or bands of about 30 to 50 people or so, um, generally a few extended families. um, And they basically move from place to place according to the seasons, often following herds of cattle or or crop cycles, um, and surviving by hunting and fishing and gathering edible plants. And so that may sound an idyllic lifestyle. But in fact, their life expectancy was only around 25 to 30 years. Um, So the question that interested me was, what microbes infected them, And did they generally die of infectious diseases? Um, Unfortunately, very few infectious agents leave any trace, um, at least on the skeletons that have been found. And so it's difficult to answer these questions. But we do know that hunter-gatherers didn't suffer from the classical acute childhood infections um, that were epidemic among us until um, very recently when um, immunization has uh, sort of dealt with them. Things like measles, mumps, and rubella, I'm talking about, the classic childhood illnesses. And we know that they didn't suffer from these because... There just weren't enough people in their band, in the isolated bands, to sustain such infections. Um, I mean, people have looked at modern hunter-gatherer bands and uh, found that if, for example, measles does get introduced into them uh, from the outside... Um, it, it certainly rips through them all because they've got no immunity and no genetic resistance. But uh, once the uh, outbreak has finished, the measles virus have nowhere to go. And so it dies out and it would have to be introduced to them again uh, for them to suffer again. Um, so you were suggesting I told you about malaria for a start. Um, this has certainly been around in Africa for thousands of years. Um, and it, it's not absolutely clear whether the hunter-gatherers suffered from it or not. But we do know now that the mosquitoes that transmit the parasite efficiently, uh, they're called Anopheles gambiae have only evolved during the agricultural era. Um, and so uh, most people think that malaria probably did infect hunter-gatherers occasionally, um, but that, that it probably didn't really affect the, the life of the band as a whole. Um, it's also true that some, uh, there, there are four types of malaria that infect humans and two of them can um, establish a chronic infection which uh, stays in the body for the lifetime of the person and gives bouts of uh, fever and also um, makes the person extremely lethargic. So because these don't have to constantly travel from one person to another, it's thought that hunter-gatherers may have suffered from these types of malaria. And certainly if they did, then um, having a person with chronic malaria, with lethargy and really being um, very much indisposed to the hunter-gatherer lifestyle uh, could have been a a problem for the bands. On the other hand, sleeping sickness, which you also mentioned, uh, was almost certainly a major problem for them. Um, this is uh, also a protozoa um, caused by the trypanosome and uh, it, it, its natural uh, target is large game, wild game animals in Africa. So almost all large game animals are infected with this um, trypanosome and it causes them no problem at all. It's spread between them by the fly, and it just seems to be a relationship that uh, is is advantageous to the tsetse fly and no problem to the um, large game. However, if the microbe spreads to humans, uh, then it causes a fatal encephalitis. Um, there are several, well, two different sorts of um, sleeping sickness that can affect humans. One is acute, in which case the encephalitis would um, come on very rapidly and the person would die. Uh, or there's a chronic phase, um, and again, like malaria, this could have caused the bands a lot of uh, problems because it was difficult, obviously, for them moving from place to place to um, be able to accommodate sick, uh, chronically sick individuals. Um, so, yes, so uh, it seems that um, people get uh, sleeping sickness if they get bitten by a tsetse fly that is carrying it, and in order to do that, you have to be in fairly close contact with large game animals because tsetse flies don't. Fly far from these animals that they infect. So, following that line of uh, thought, it would mostly be the hunters uh, of large game in the in the hunter-gatherer bands who got infected, um, and they would, of course, be the fit young males um, members who were really required for the band to survive. So, historians think that um, the loss of you know two or three vital hunters from the band would be a death sentence for it. And in fact, some of them even suggest that the Tripoli's home might have initiated man's exodus from Africa to uh, cooler and perhaps healthier areas, which occurred some 50 to 100,000 years ago.
1: Let's talk a bit about that. Humans spread across the planet and eventually underwent a shift from a nomadic to a sedentary farming lifestyle. Uh, this marked a turning point for human history, but also heralded a new era for microbes. Can you please talk about this for our listeners?
2: Humans abandoned, when they abandoned the hunter-gatherer lifestyle in favor of fixed dwellings, um, which first occurred in Mesopotamia about ten to 12,000 years ago, um, it was the beginning of the agricultural le- revolution, uh, and microbes had an absolute field day. It was initially a very unhealthy period for our ancestors, um, for several reasons, in fact. The the first one is that they were now living in small, crowded, dirty hovels, so microbes found it much easier um, to pass from one person to another. Um, And those that uh, that spread by close contact, like, for example, TB and leprosy, um, certainly increased a lot in, in this early farming period. Um, secondly, uh, hunter-gatherers were always up, you know, moving from one place to another and leaving all their waste materials behind, but now, of course, living in a fixed um, permanent dwellings, uh, their waste materials accumulated in and around the dwellings, so encouraging transmission of various um, fecal-borne organisms, um, particularly, I think, intestinal worms became a real problem at that stage. Another problem was that instead of collecting their food uh, and water daily, as they um, went about, um, they now stored their food and water in their dirty hovels, um, and this allowed uh, microbes that um, spread in food or water um, an opportunity to flourish. And finally, and most importantly I think, um, our ancestors now lived in very close proximity to the newly domesticated animals. Um, They often shared dwellings with them and they certainly um, had very close contact with them and perhaps particularly sick animals. Um, So microbes that um, had always lived on these animals now took the opportunity to jump to humans. And uh, these were the emerging infections, obviously, of the farming era. And what they are now is our classical childhood illnesses. So things like smallpox, mumps, measles, uh, flu, all these things, um, jumped from animals to humans during this early farming period. It's interesting that recently, now that the genomes of these um, uh, microbes have been sequenced, we can see um, where they came from. And so smallpox, for example, is most closely related to camel and gerbil pox viruses. So it seems that the ancient um, relative of those viruses must have jumped um, from two humans, camels and gerbils, around about the same time. And similarly with measles, um, is the genome of measles is most similar to the Rindipest virus, which infects cattle, and also to the canine distemper virus infecting dogs. So again, you can imagine that, that these um, animals and humans were coming into close contact, and so now um, the viruses must have jumped between them, and now they share these uh, viruses.
1: Can you please talk a bit about some of the ancient plagues, uh, such as the Plague of Athens and the Justinian Plague and their impact on history?
2: The first plagues to be recorded in sufficient detail for us to hazard a guess as to um, what caused them. Um, Well, the first one was actually the Plague of Athens, which occurred in 430 BC. Um, This is interesting. It occurred during the Peloponnesian Wars um, when Sparta and Athens were fighting each other. They'd been fighting for more than 20 years, I think. And on this particular occasion, the Spartan infantry were attacking Athens, um, and Pericles, who was the ruler of Athens at the time, uh, decided to fortify the city, not to counterattack, but to fortify the city, um, leaving access only via the sea port of Piraeus, and to sit out the siege until the Spartans surrendered. But it didn't quite work out like that, because... Everybody from the surrounding countryside crowded into Athens and it became an incredibly crowded and unhealthy place to be. And eventually, uh, not surprisingly, an epidemic struck suddenly and raged for four years, killing 25% of the population, including Pericles himself. Euclides did uh, list the symptoms, but um, historians are really uh, divided as to what was the cause of this. I think most back the, the, think it was probably smallpox but a few historians favor measles or typhoid. Um, but whatever it was, it was instrumental in the defeat of the Athenians, and, heralded, and that heralded the end of the Greek Empire. Um, the other one I could find uh, information about was the Antonine Plague, which hit the Roman Empire in 166 AD, when Marcus Aurelius Antonius was uh, the emperor. This is interesting. It probably began in Seleucia, which is um, a city on the river Tigris, where troops had been sent to quell an uprising. It seemed they, uh, when it began, they made their way back to Rome and carried the the plague with them. And they believed that this was a punishment uh, for the soldiers who sacked the temple in the city, the Temple of Apollo, and uh, opened a sealed tomb. And they think that evil spirits came out of the tomb and caused this in retribution. So it's described as a fever plague by Galen of Bergman, who was the physician around at the time. And it's almost, it was almost certainly smallpox. I said that the troops had brought it back to Rome, where it killed at its height 5,000 a day. Um, but from there, it was carried along all the trade routes that the um, Romans had established all over the empire and on indeed into India and China. It lasted for several decades, and there was an enormous loss of manpower, um, which led to a decline in the empire for for the next hundred years or so, um, merely because they just didn't have the manpower to um, form their uh, army, to um, man their agriculture, to do the trading and everything. The Justinian plague, yes. This also hit the Roman Empire, but this time in 542 AD, and lasted on and off for 200 years. Um, It was estimated to kill 100 million overall, uh, and probably spelt the end of the empire, in fact. This is thought to be the first pandemic of bubonic plague, caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis, um, but of course that wasn't known at the time. It then... After 200 years, it disappeared from Europe for 600 years before emerging again as the Black Death in 1346. So an absolutely massive spread. And of course, I mean, the Romans had so many trade routes and everything all over their empire um, that, you know, they're more or less asking for microbes to be carried along them by um, the constant procession of traders and things and armies, of course.
1: So what is probably the most well-known pandemic in history is that of the Black Death in the Middle Ages, which was the second Mm -hmm. bubonic plague pandemic in recorded history. Uh, Can you please talk about the Black Death for our listeners? Sure.
2: Um, The Black Death, uh, as I just said, began in 1346. It spread west from Mongolia, um, reaching the port of Kaffa on the Black Sea, in 1347, and uh, this was when it was first sort of um, noticed by Europeans, if you like, because Caffa um, was a Genoese trading post on the Black Sea, and uh, they were um, fighting the Mongols at the time, and uh, when when this plague arrived, um, the Italians there hurriedly jumped into their galleys and sailed for home. Um, So they first landed in Sicily, um, where They carried the plague with them, and uh, they were very unwelcome guests. In the the end, they were thrown out, and so they carried on sail to Genoa and to Venice, and initiating an epidemic of the plague at each stop. Um, And from these centres, the plague spread all over Europe, Asia, and North Africa. Again, following trade routes in from the ports that it arrived at, Um, the microbe reached the south coast of Britain in 1348 and traveled north, uh, again along trade routes, covering the whole length of the country in about 500 days. Um, It killed killed about a third of the population, um, between a half and a third in fact, and worldwide that amounted to about 25 million people. Um, It finally abated in Europe in 1353, but outbreaks continued for about 300 years ending with the Great Plague of London in 1665-6. to And obviously, like the uh, Justinian Plague, there was a huge loss of manpower, and the population didn't actually recover for 300 years. And so it's, it's thought that the changes that occurred um, probably led to the breakup of the feudal system in, in Britain anyway, and the beginning of the sort of modern era. Of course, at the time, no one knew the cause. Um, there were all sorts of theories. But, uh, and this was all worked out in the third pandemic, which began in the 1800s. But in fact, I mean, it is interesting. I don't know if you want me to talk about how, how it is spread.
1: Yes, that'd be great.
2: Okay. Um, well, it's caused by a bacterium called Yersinia pestis. And this bacteria naturally infects rodents. And uh, it's spread between them by their fleas. And uh, rodents live in enormous sort of underground cities, and many rodents, but not all, are immune. They they don't get any disease with this Yersinia pestis. It just infects them and their fleas pass it from one rodent to another. But uh, sometimes there are rodents that are susceptible, particularly rats, and sometimes it sort of... um, particularly when there's been a population explosion among rodents, they mix with other types. They come out of their burrows and um, mix with other types of rodents while looking for food. And if it infects a susceptible kind of uh, rodent, let's say rats, because that's what's normally said, then they die very rapidly of the disease. The fleas then get hungry and jump off the rat, and if they jump onto humans and they're carrying the microbe, then that's how humans get infected. So... The plague, is not, the plague in humans is actually cannot be passed from one human to another, it has to come from an infected rat flea. And so once it gets into the population, because rats were so common in those days and particularly uh, travelled around the world in boats and then followed uh, trade routes inland, following the traders, um, this is how the microbes spread so widely.
1: What was the microbial impact of European exploration and colonization into the Americas?
2: Well, it was enormous. Um, the, when Europeans um, discovered the New World, which was at the end of the 15th century, um, the Americas had been isolated since the end of the Ice Age, some 10,000 years before. Um, so uh, by the time the Europeans got there, there were around 100 million Native Americans um, living mostly, well, a lot, in, a lot of them in two thriving communities, the Incas in Peru and the Aztec in Mexico. Um, the Europeans uh, were really bounty hunters, and it was absolutely catastrophic for these empires, not only because they were looking for um, gold and other things, but also because of the microbes that they brought with them. So, really, it was like a reenaction of the early agricultural stage of the you know, when the hunter gatherers became farmers and settled down and um, got all the childhood infectious diseases for the first time, like measles, smallpox, mumps, rubella. Um, that is exactly what happened um, in the Americas. The Aztecs and the Incas had never experienced anything like this before, they had no resistance and they just uh, really dropped like flies. Terrible, terrible um, disaster it was. So uh, the population dropped by about 90% over the next 120 years with the loss of whole tribes of Native Americans. And one example I found was that in Hispaniola, which is where Columbus actually uh, arrived in America, now Haiti, the population of 8 million when he arrived, and not one remained 40 years later. So no wonder um, the Aztecs and the Incas were conquered so easily. And this same um, scenario was played out in uh, other countries as well, that um, the Europeans conquered, for example, Australia. The same thing happened to the native Australians there, the Aborigines, and um, many of the isolated islands that they uh, arrived at on their boats and things. So really fairly disastrous, I would say.
1: Can you talk a bit about the potato blight in Ireland and its effects?
2: Yeah, I included this in the book um, to illustrate that even microbes that don't infect us directly can have a devastating effect on us. And in this uh, occasion, it's because they infected and wiped out a very very important food source. It's... The potato blight is one of the most pathogenic of plant infections. It can kill a whole field of previously healthy plants within days under the right conditions. It hit Europe. Well, the potato was imported, obviously, at the time um, when the the, um, Europeans first went to uh, South America. They brought back the potato, and it became extremely popular over the years. Um, And the the potato blight, it seems, came from the same South American source and uh, was imported um, into Europe and seen there for the first time in the 1840s. It reached Britain in 1845 and it raged again in 1846 and again in 1848. Um, The Irish cottiers were the worst hit uh, for several reasons. Um, First of all, because of their poverty um, they were living from hand to mouth anyway. They owned no land. They were really bottom of the, the pile, if you like. They owned no land of their own. They were behoven to their landlords, and they simply had no reserves when this happened. They had a, at the time, in the 1800s, their population was rapidly increasing. They had very large families, and they had become dependent on potatoes as a dietary staple. I mean, the potato uh, really, in Ireland particularly, replaced grain crops uh, because it was so much more productive and because I found it rather surprising to learn that the potato plus a little bit of milk is enough in a diet to prevent you from getting any vitamin deficiencies or anything. So that's actually all they needed and that was, in the end, all they had. And the the final thing is that, uh, of course, the climate in Ireland is very damp, and uh, that is ideal for the blight to strike. So the result was absolutely horrific. I mean, uh, 4.5 million faced starvation, of which over a million died, and 1.3 million emigrated. So a really major, major event for Ireland and for the UK, in fact.
1: What did people throughout history think caused diseases? Um, I know earlier we kind of touched on religious punishment and things like that. Um, Can you talk a bit about the discovery of microbes and some of the major milestones that got us to our present level of understanding?
2: Yeah, sure. From the sort of Middle Ages onwards, most people believed in a miasma theory, which attributed epidemics to foul smells and noxious vapors emanating from swamps and rotten mater- rotting material. <laughs> so uh, when an epidemic came along the rich, of course, would move away and go to healthier places and, and avoid um, an, epi- an epidemic if they could, but the poor were obviously not able to do that. This myasma theory went, uh, was held until, oh, somewhere around the mid-1800s um, when Louis Pasteur in Paris demonstrated using filters that actually it was some particulate material in the air that was required for molds to grow Um, and so rather than it just being noxious smells and gases and things there was obviously something in the air which uh, you could actually prevent with a filter so um, they called these particles germs and uh, in 1877 Robert Koch in Berlin actually isolated the first germ or bacteria and that was the cause of anthrax. This heralded the golden age of bacteriology when more and more pathogenic microbes were isolated and uh, discovered to be the cause of diseases and so there was a big change then and of course now um, we can actually Sequence the genomes of these things and know where they've come from and everything. But I think, really, in the late 1800s, this was a a huge breakthrough. And very rapidly, most people abandoned their miasma theory and believed in the germ theory um, for the production of infectious diseases.
1: Can you talk a bit about the history of smallpox inoculation? And uh, is there any smallpox left in the world today?
2: Smallpox was unusual because despite most childhood infections becoming milder over the centuries, as I explained, due to genetic uh, resistance developing within communities, smallpox epidemics increased in frequency and ferocity uh, throughout the 19th century, um, continuing to kill around 30% of those it infected. And uh, it's been estimated that it killed uh, 300 million in the 20th century alone. So it is, it certainly is the most lethal virus that we've known. So the first successful prevention method known was inoculation, so-called, which had been used in China and India for hundreds of years before it was popularized in Europe. Um, It involved either taking dried scabs from a smallpox lesion and blowing them through a tube up a child's nose or dipping a needle into the pus from the lesion and puncturing the skin on the upper arm or forehead several times. Now, that sounds quite an amazing thing to do, but I assume what it was doing was giving the child a very small dose of virus uh, in the wrong place. So if you put it into the skin, it probably gives the um, body time to react to it before it sort of hits the the blood and becomes generalised in the body. So... These children would produce a few pox, so-called, a bit of a rash, and uh, perhaps a fever, and then generally they would recover, and after that they would be immune for life. The technique was brought to Britain by Lady Mary Montague in the 1920s. She'd suffered from smallpox, and uh, her brother had died of it, and so when she heard about this, oh, sorry, yes, I forgot to say, she she travelled to Constantinople in Turkey, where her husband was the ambassador for England and when she heard about this inoculation practice that was going on there she was obviously interested in having her children inoculated and uh, she did that and uh, they were apparently immune to smallpox after that so when she returned to the UK and a smallpox epidemic came along she um, tried to encourage people to use this technique of course People were pretty skeptical about it, and there was a lot of opposition from doctors and also from the church, who seemed to think that smallpox was what God had planned for you kind of thing, and who shouldn't do anything about it. Um, but anyway, King George I finally gave his consent um, to his grandchildren, his granddaughters being inoculated, after it had been tested out on six condemned prisoners and several orphans from an orphanage. Um, he, he said that his grand, granddaughters could have it. And of course this did popularise it and the procedure um, was pretty widespread really until it was replaced um, by the safer vaccination pioneered by Edward Jenner. And that was brought in in the early 1800s and is still being used today. Um, now you asked me the question, is there still smallpox around? And the answer is Um, As far as I know, yes, there is. Um, When smallpox was eventually eradicated from the wild, um, two deposits of it um, were made, one in Russia and one in the US. And uh, they were intending, I think, to keep it for about 10 years just to make sure that it didn't reappear in the wild and then to destroy these um, deposits. But in fact, they never have been destroyed. And uh, since 9-11... Um, they probably won't be destroyed because smallpox is one of the viruses which um, people reckon would be very good um, as a biological uh, weapon. And therefore, um, it's reckoned that we ought to keep a deposit of smallpox in order to be able to make vaccine um, should it ever be necessary.
1: What are your personal thoughts on, on not completely destroying it?
2: Well, I mean, before there was there were issues about biological warfare. I thought it should be destroyed, um, but I agree. Um, well, I wonder actually whether it is really necessary to make vaccines from it, because we do have the um, the sequence, the DNA sequence of the virus now. So imagine we could make a vaccine without it. Um, but I think they um, feel that. I know they actually the Americans. Um, vaccinated some um, troops when they were going into iran iraq i think and they found that it had the the vaccine that we used presently had an unacceptably high um prob- you know had acceptably unacceptably high problems with it mm-hmm. and so i think they're probably working on making a new one um but yeah i don't know really i i suppose it could be it could possibly be useful in the future okay the the question is is it is it safe and and that was obviously a question when um Russia broke up um it n- nobody's quite sure whether it escaped to other places. you know mm-hmm. scientists took it with them when they went to other places, so there's always that doubt in people's minds.
1: What are the biggest microbial threats facing humankind today?
2: Um, yes um, that's a difficult one um I think probably. Multi drug drug resistance, uh, resistant microbes like um, malaria and TB, for example, Um, and also pandemic flu is always on the horizon. Um, If a flu (coughs) emerges um, which we don't, which we're not expecting, and we don't have a vaccine to, then it always takes. Or, um, well, I don't know, four to six months to make a vaccine, during which time I an mean, influenza can spread around the world as it has in the past. Um, a global spread of Ebola is another one, Lassa fever. But, but I actually think that um, a completely new emerging infection acquired from an animal source would po- pose a huge problem. And it's not unlikely. And new viruses are emerging at the rate of about one a year at the moment. And, you know, like SARS, we've never I- expected or heard of, in fact, SARS. Never would we have thought that that kind of virus would cause such an outbreak. Um, so something completely new um, would be a huge problem, mostly because with today's rapid travel, uh, a virus could spread globally before it was ever recognized, you know, and it takes as I said, a good four months to... You've got to isolate it, you've got to sequence it, and then you've got to start making a vaccine. Um, SARS uh, did exactly that. It reached 27 countries and infected about 8,000 people um, before it was finally controlled. Um, So if you don't have a vaccine, you've got to go back to quarantine measures to control the spread, and that's exactly what they did with SARS. But they were lucky, because SARS is... um, it travels in quite heavy droplets from the throat, and therefore it doesn't travel that far. You know, had it been something like flu, um, goodness knows what would have happened. So that would be my bet, is that something completely unknown will emerge, and we'll all be floundering about trying to get to grips with it. It's quite interesting, actually, because um, Bill Gates... um, is very interested in epidemics and pandemics and very knowledgeable about them and he um has been trying to persuade governments that um you know they should be prepared for these unknown um events and he always makes the analogy with um a war you know he says if Nobody waits until a war is on the horizon before making bombs and helicopters and recruiting an army and everything. They do it. And all countries, however poor, um, have these things, to a certain degree anyway, ready just in case. But when it comes down to epidemics and pandemics, uh, that just isn't the thinking. You know, the money is not there to prepare yourself properly and therefore... Uh, What we do is wait and see what comes and then um, start scrambling about trying to make things. And the last Ebola epidemic, you know, lasted for two years for exactly that reason. We knew Ebola, we knew it would come again, but nobody was prepared to put forward the money to actually have a vaccine ready on the shelf. So, sorry, that's my lecture for the day anyway, but um, (laughs) I feel quite strongly about it and so does Bill Gates. But um, so far... Uh, you know, that's just how it is.
1: What are the odds you think we'll see a, a major, major, like, super devastating pandemic within the next, I don't know, 20, 50 years?
2: Um, well, it would in- entirely depend um, what sort of, I say virus, but it might not be a virus, what what sort it was and particularly how it spreads. <laughs> you know, HIV is devastating and we never expected that to come. Um, but HIV spread so slowly um, because of its method of spread by sexual contact, um, that, um, well, we haven't been able to control it, but and we haven't been able to make a vaccine, but it is a bit different from something like Ebola or flu, which infects you one day and, and kills you about, well, Ebola infects you one day and kills you about a week later. Um, you know, you need something there and then to stop the thing spreading. And so, yes, I've gone off the point.
1: Oh, um, no, you're
2: fine. I don't know what... <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be, um, and that's the point, isn't it? Really, mm-hmm. that you have to be you have to be ready um, for whatever hits us, and um, right there on day one.
1: Well, Dorothy, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My final question for you is: What are you working on now?
2: Well, yes, I'm not actually writing a book at the moment. Um, instead, I'm writing a science column for a local newspaper. Um, the last book I wrote was on Ebola. I, I was out in um, Sierra Leone, uh, you know, when the um, epidemic was going on, and I wrote a book about that. Um, and whenever i finished a book, I say, right, I'm never writing another book. And my husband says, oh, yeah, well. But anyway, I'm in that phase right now. So I'm writing a column for the local newspaper, which I really enjoy. And uh, maybe sometime I'll write another one, but not yet. <laughs>
1: Well, I'd love to have you back on the show in the future. I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Take care. Well,
2: thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you. you.